Okay, good morning, uh, good afternoon. Welcome to Free Association. Uh, my name is Dennis Barker and I've got a, an interview to share that I've just found on YouTube. It's an interview with Matthias Desmet, who's a clinical psychologist uh, based in, in Belgium. And he's got a lot of good things to say about mass formation, about the, about the group psychology that's going on at the moment. So I'm just going to set this away. It's about an hour and a half. Uh, I may not have time for all of it. I may just play the first hour of it. But here we go. than in Belgium at the moment. Oh, well, uh, for me it feels quite familiar as I think that uh, uh, I've been something like an outsider uh, uh, in the academic world uh, for a long time already. Um, uh, for instance, you just mentioned my book, uh, The Pursuit of Objectivity in Psychology, uh, which uh, in which I actually uh, claim that um, uh, contemporary research methods in uh, psychology uh, might need to be uh, revisited uh, because uh, uh, the, the pursuit of objectivity in psychology actually is problematic in quite some respects. So uh, I always, I think, uh, for, for a long time I have been uh, something like an outsider in the academic world in this respect. Uh, also, like as a Lacanian psychoanalyst uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, contemporary academic uh, uh, psychological mm -hmm. uh, world, uh, it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't go without saying. I mean, um, um, uh, there are not that many Lacanians uh, uh, in, uh, in a faculty of psychology uh, at this moment. So also in this respect, I was uh, something like an outsider. I'm afraid to, 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 to say that also in the Lacanian world, I'm an outsider. <laughs> because uh, not that many Lacanians um, have a master degree in statistics and are involved in, uh, in research. Um, uh, but I, 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 I am. So um, I found uh, that actually a pretty interesting combination because I graduated at the same university in like sociology, the University of Ghent, and I was always interested in like symbolic interactionism and uh, the symbolic interpretation, the subjective meaning of certain facts. But there was a strong tendency back then, and maybe it's still the case now, on statistics, measurable, observable, objective kind of things that you can measure, and the whole symbolic interpretation, the subjective interpretation was kind of being given like on the sideline with anthropology. I had Professor Bingston and stuff, which was interesting, but it was more like a side project. There was a huge focus just on the measurable statistics. Mm. How do you combine the, the background that you have in statistics, which are more like objective and measurable, and the fact of more the uh, use of language, the symbolic negotiation with the psychological world? I have a background in statistics and for um, something like seven or eight years I was involved in statistical research, but I, uh, the longer um, uh, I tried to do statistical research in psychology and the longer I tried to measure 
psychological phenomena, the more skeptic I became. And at uh, this moment, I actually think that um, uh, we try to measure too much in psychology uh, and in the social sciences in general, and maybe even in the science in the science in the sciences in general. And there is too much um, uh, attention or too much focus on measurement, while most of the phenomena we deal with in all sciences are only measurable to a limited degree, and they are perfectly you can describe them mathematically. But that's something different than to measure them. For instance, Lacan tried to describe psychological psychological phenomena in a mathematical way, but he never tried to measure them. It's something completely different. One could even, we could even say that uh, after um, the first half of the 20th century, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, in physics and in chemistry. Uh, people started to realize that, that, that phenomena could only be measured to a certain extent, that measurements were, are never absolute. They are always relative. And after that, in the second, the second part of the 20th century, a new a kind of science developed, complexity science, uh, complex dynamical systems theory, which actually strived for mathematical descriptions, so trying to find the formula that determines a phenomenon rather than trying to measure it, because people started to become aware that uh, the act of measurement itself changed the phenomenon that they tried to measure. So they knew from then on that it would forever be impossible to really arrive at adequate and absolute measurement of phenomena. And that's why they started to strive for something else. And for, for, for mathematical description. And the more complex and the more dynamical a phenomenon is, the less it is suitable for measurement. And um, uh, people often forget that, I'm afraid. Uh, and, and in particular in psychology and in the social sciences in general, where we deal with the ultimate uh, complex dynamical systems, human subjectivity, uh, uh, I think we still try to measure too much. And of course, we can measure certain things, uh, but we should uh, be much more aware uh, of the subjective status of all measurement. In yeah, that system. reminds me of the Thomas theorem. Uh, if people uh, define situations as, as real, they are real in their consequences. So the whole belief, and, and you know, that's also a huge, and I know you also have an opinion about it, that whole uh, placebo effect, the power of belief, the power of presupposition, like how much it can influence your psychology, your biology, I still feel it's like a hugely neglected aspect. Plus, we have such a belief in science right now that it's still a belief. It's like scientism, believing in science, but we treat it like it's objective and belief doesn't play a role at all. But even now with all the statistics, you could even look at it in a religious sense that the WHO is the Vatican and then you have the high priest and then you have the vaccination, which is like the baptism and all the rituals there and the belief. So we think we're past belief, but a huge part is still based on belief. It's a right. It's a ritual. It's a right. Yeah. What, what we are doing now, I think, is something like a ritual to uh, to um, to deal with our anxiety, <laughs> the anxiety that um, that um, is um, uh, was lingering on in society for a long time already. Um, um, yes, I agree. Yes, because uh, I will drop it down below in the uh, description. I took a look at the CDC numbers, right, a week ago. People can look this up themselves. I'll drop it in the link of the podcast. And on the side of the CDC, it says that only 6% of the COVID deaths are actually only by COVID. It's on the side. This is not a conspiracy. You can look it up. 
Uh, and then on the side, they say, back at the presentation in August, and they had 2.6 underlying illnesses. Now I took a look at its uh, beginning of March, 3.8 oh, underlying illnesses. 3.8, almost four underlying illnesses. Yeah. So what I've been asking during this entire crisis is, is this proportionate? You even can take a look at how much chances people have of dying, and people above 80 or 85 have 7,800 times more likeliness of dying than people between 5 and 17 years old. So where is the proportionality in this? I feel it's lacking in our response of treating this, of looking at things in proportion. Mm. Yes, that was one of the first things I noticed, that there was a lack of proportionality. Uh, and even more, uh, that the question uh, um, about proportionality was never raised in the public space. That was the strangest thing of all, that from the beginning we had this um, very basic uh, uh, idea that there was a virus and um, um, uh, there was only one option. Uh, we had to move to lockdowns and then we have to apply lockdowns and then apply social distancing rules and stuff like that. that a, was a, a social distancing, yeah. A social distancing, <laughs> yes. yes. So I, I, I noticed that, that and nobody actually raised this, this, this very fundamental and most fundamental uh, question uh, um, or, or, or even compare. Uh, the number of victims that uh, uh, the virus uh, could claim in the worst case scenario, uh, scenario to the to the number of uh, casualties or victims that the measures themselves, the lockdowns themselves, uh, would claim. Eh? That was it's very strange because uh, and, and immediately there were many scientists and even large international institutions such as the United Nations who warned that. Uh, the number of uh, 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 fatalities caused by uh, by the lockdowns uh, could very well be much higher than the number of victims claimed by the virus, even in the worst case scenario. So, um, the international institution institutions warned us, many scientists warned us, and nevertheless, uh, the narrative in the public space never really was influenced by these uh, warnings uh, uh, and, and by these uh, um, uh, dramatic scenarios predicted by, the, by many people, by many scientists, uh, about uh, the possible consequences uh, of, of lockdowns, for instance. Um, so that was one of the things I noticed, that, that it was a very strange thing that, that nobody ever really considered uh, the balance between uh, um, um, uh, the costs and the benefits of the of the lockdowns. Yeah, I know you also said, and that's just me. I almost never been scared of the virus because I saw the numbers coming in and the demographic uh, distribution, and also put it into context in Lombardy, dirty air quality, the second largest uh, elderly population in the world. So even though there were the nightmare scenarios, I, saw, I put it into context. I looked at the demographic. I looked at the distribution. I looked at how many people normally die. So it's like, okay, it's kind of like this. But it seems like that anchoring effect in people of uh, the predictions, the statistical models, almost like you know numbers taking over and making decisions for people, but almost like AI will become, has kind of programmed people, set the tendency that the cognitive dissonance can't handle the fact that they first reacted that way. Because as more and more data, especially if you compare now with a year ago, that makes the crisis a lot less than as it was in the beginning with people dropping dead in front of Chinese stores, etc. Yes.
extremely strange. Um, uh, it's, it's something that only can be explained in psychological terms, I think. But indeed, it is extremely strange because actually um, the narrative was actually created or, 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 or um, um, put in, into the public space by Neil Ferguson of Imperial mm-hmm. College in London, uh, who predicted on the basis of uh, some mathematical models that uh, the victim would claim 40 million uh, victims uh, fatalities uh, and actually after one day already uh, uh, some other uh, statisticians uh, uh, um, uh, showed very clearly that these predictions and these models probably would be dramatically wrong and they proved right because for instance, that was an advantage of Ferguson, his models. He made very precise predictions. So he said, like, by the end of May, there will be 40 million casual, uh, fatalities. And uh, he even made specific predictions, I think, for, for specific countries. I remember that for Sweden, uh, when he, he warned Sweden that if they would apply a lockdown, there would be 40,000 uh, 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 people dying of COVID, 40,000 fatalities. And if they didn't, there would be 90,000 fatalities by the end of May. So at the end of May, Sweden didn't apply a lockdown, mm-hmm. and they counted 6,000 people mm-hmm. uh, dead from, from COVID, so, which showed in a very clear way that actually the models that, that, that uh, uh, Ferguson dramatically overestimated the danger of the virus. And that was a strange thing, that actually uh, the, the whole strategy designed to, to counter the virus was based on these predictions of um, um, uh, uh, Ferguson. So you would expect that if these predictions prove really wrong, if, if, it, if, it, if it is uh, absolutely sure that they overestimated the danger, that the strategy would be changed, would be adapted. But that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. The Numbers of Ferguson, the predictions proved wrong, but the narrative continues, continued as if the numbers were right. That was the strangest thing. The narrative was not corrected. And again, for me, this shows um, uh, the overrating of the danger together with uh, the lack of, of consideration of the proportionality of the, of the measures shows that uh, very strong psychological uh, processes were going on in society. Yeah, this, the strange thing for me is also that, and they blame you that you don't care about humanity or about lives, but one, I think a lot of these decisions are made on with non-human tests, like the PCR test. We don't have to go like heavily into it, but they make a lot of assumptions based on the RNI sequence, and then they, you know, the model predicts like that test, which is a non-human thing, you know, that that predicts like oh you have corona these models predict like this is what it will be it's almost like you know that's what technocracy sometimes is like technology deciding for us this fact-checking online technology deciding for us and when we see now the things that we're lacking for me it's one of the most thing things that make us human touch play art getting together freedom of speech you know uh having a constructive debate all these things that for me are essential in humanity. It's not that I don't care about humanity. I think they should also be taken into account, those essential things that make us human. Very striking. It's very striking. It's very striking. And actually, the essence, the core of the human being is considered a neglectable detail in this crisis. It's considered something that um, we should sacrifice in order to secure or to avoid even the smallest risk 
uh, of being contaminated by the coronavirus while it's getting clearer and clearer, I think, that all the measures, uh, uh, they do have uh, huge uh, collateral damage. They do cause huge collateral damage, but it's less clear if they really uh, uh, lead up to a, a good protection against the virus. <laughs> that's, that's I'm going to let my union uh, in me loose, and I'm interested about your point of view about this. When I take a look at this, and it's in a symbolic way, I call it a bit like the overprotective mother. If you're going to take a look at that symbolism of like the matrix, when you is plugged into the matrix, he's almost like in the toxic womb with the placenta plugged into his head. And normally what happens with birth is that a mature human being, like a child, is brought into the world, take risks and become a mature human being. It's being fed by the mother and then released into the world. This is the exact opposite. These are grown, mature human beings who are kept in an infantile state by the nanny state, by the overprotective mother, under the virtue of protecting him, but actually keeping them in resilient, uh, triggered, infantile, you know, not able to cope with life, not able to take responsibility. So for, for me, it's like the a bit like the dark feminine overprotective mother under the guise we're doing it for your benefit, but it's actually, you know, keeping the citizens in a very infantile, immature, irresilient, irresponsible state. What's your opinion about that? Well, what you describe is, uh, is uh, the core characteristic of totalitarian systems, of course. And, uh, they, 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 they pretend that uh, they, they, they will protect you and society in an optimal way. And to do so, uh, they have to ignore what you want yourself. <laughs> uh, they, have to, they, they, they think they know better uh, what's good for you. Yeah, I call it that, mommy, uh, mommy knows there. best. Yeah, mommy, knows mommy, mommy knows best, and there is no alternative, and that's, that's something typical for totalitarianism. There is no alternative. If we don't, um, uh, if the IC units um, uh, fill up, uh, then there is no alternative. We have, we have to lock down society. But I agree. There is some. Uh, there is definitely uh, 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 there are similarities between uh, the way in which uh, government uh, acts now and uh, and and the, an overprotective mother. I would say like. Well, a mother without a lack. In the beginning of life, a child um, uh, experiences and conceives uh, its mother uh, as, a, as, a, as another, another person without a lack. It believes that uh, the mother is almighty and that she knows everything. And, 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 and the mother in the beginning also behaves like that. And she has to behave like that. Until, until something like three and a half years of age, uh, a mother has to behave as if she knows everything and if, and if she's, she's always there. Or at, or at least... Something in the child and the state of a child asks that. Um, uh, but usually, somewhere uh, in the course of the fourth year of life, um, uh, a child starts to realize that the mother does not know everything, that mm -hmm. at the symbolic level, th that she does have a lack. And at that moment, the mother also progressively, step by step, has to, uh, uh, has to allow the child uh, uh, to, to, uh, to contradict her, to, uh, to, um, to, um, uh, to interpret, uh, to give, to give uh, uh, meaning in its own way to the things of life. And so the child, step by step, has to be allowed some freedom, uh, some symbolic freedom. And that's indeed when a totalitarian, when a totalitarian system arises or when totalitarian thinking arises in society, that's what tends to disappear. The space in which a subject can make its own choice, even in the private uh, atmosphere, uh, disappears. And the, 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 the state, more and more, uh, something in the discourse of the state 
prevents or, or, or uh, uh, the, the subject of making its own choices. Um, uh, that's, I think, uh, typical of, uh, of, uh, of uh, totalitarian thinking. Um, um. You're also Lacanian, but well, like maybe maybe I was too young to read it, but I kind of found it like funny that he was like uh, analyzing language, but he was reading so difficult to read. At least for me, it was very dense and difficult to read. And sometimes I like this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who says, uh, "The corruption of man starts with the corruption of language." And there's a lot of like uh, using of language right now. You know, the, the cloak of language, of social distancing, the new normal. You know, language is a powerful tool. I'm, uh, what's your opinion about the use of language right now and the importance of freedom of speech and voicing and speaking your truth? Uh, of course, uh, uh, the way in which we handle language uh, is, is, is extremely fundamental for the way in which we can be a human being. And what's striking me at this moment is that um, uh, 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 the mainstream discourse uh, claims uh, to be uh, scientific discourse uses um, uh, numbers and graphs and stuff uh, in a very abundant way. Um, and um, at, the, this, but at the same time, it actually uh, does not tolerate something that is really fundamental to science, which means systematic doubt, mm-hmm. freedom, freedom of speech, uh, uh, um, uh, fundamental skepticism. Uh, we see less and less space, less and less tolerance uh, for, for what I think is the essence uh, of, a, of, a, of a scientific process and of a truly scientific attitude, which is actually yeah, something, the, 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 um, um, uh, the facilitation of a truly dialectic process where a thesis and an antithesis can be contrasted to each other. Uh, and in this way, uh, we arrive at, uh, at a deeper understanding of the, of the phenomena we are dealing with at this moment. There is almost no space anymore in society. If you even express the slightest doubt about uh, vaccination, if this would be a good strategy, yeah. then you are already uh, 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 a dissident. They are already someone uh, who should be banned from, from public space and from the mainstream media. So that's uh, truly a problem, I think. Uh, I think that's... Uh, I agree with you that the basis of wisdom is... Uh, not eternal doubt, but doubt, open debate, negotiation. It's a negotiated truth, some truth that we thought, like probably when you lived with Voltaire, probably you would think slavery would be a good thing, and now they blame Voltaire, but I put it in a historical context. But they, they act like the PC te- PCR test is completely reliable, that these measures are working, that the lockdown has a positive effect. Uh, all these things can be negotiated about negative effects of like vaccines. It's like, you know, black and white, like this is true, this is untrue. And this is also a sign of like totalitarianism. Like, you know, that's that's what it's like, even on a moral realm. And what I'm really afraid of is that in the future, when we go, and I'm running ahead of things, but when they go toward transhumanism, they're going to program AI and they have to teach that AI ethics to decide what's right and wrong. And maybe they will also program it in a totalitarian way to decide beforehand what's right and what's wrong. And that's like, you know, the watchmaker, like God, deciding what's right, what is wrong, you know, and what's allowed and what is not allowed. And when you study history, that always leads to tyranny. Mm. Or leads to a backlash in Hegelian sense that you create a dragon, that you say you fight against, but you created it because you pushed it on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. 
the transhumanistic uh, ideology is a, is a real threat and a real danger. And uh, we see this kind of uh, discourse and this kind of thinking uh, emerge in society uh, or intensify uh, without really um, uh, uh, scientific grounds, I think. There is, we have no reason to believe that uh, this would be the solution to our problems. Uh, I'm afraid it will rather be uh, uh, the cause of the problems. Uh, and indeed, uh, you mentioned several things like uh, the PCR test. Uh, there is no consensus about the PCR test, definitely not. I think rather that most um, uh, experts would agree that uh, the PCR test is very problematic for the purposes it is used now. Yesterday uh, or a few days ago, uh, a paper was published in The Lancet claiming exactly that the PCR test is valid uh, to, uh, to, to, di- to detect uh, strings of uh, RNA, mm-hmm. uh, but not at all to to uh, to, uh, to diagnose people, and that's mm-hmm. I think that's, that's that's clear for everybody who uh, who, uh, who really uh, considers the re- considers the real nature of the PCR test. So uh, the the paper uh, really uh, um, ends up with firm conclusions, uh, stating that it would be better to stop the testing and to use the money for something else. Um, uh, for instance. Um, uh, to provide more uh, 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 beds uh, in, in, in uh, IC units. Uh, well, that's uh, the thing that I said. Like the problem is hospital beds. I would say beforehand because it kind of follows a flu season between like November, mid October until like mid March. Let's say if the problem is the hospital beds, okay, let's tackle the hospital beds. I didn't mention like the masks. That's also like hugely debatable. Uh, asymptomatic spread also hugely debatable it, it can be debated like in the public sphere because uh policy unique as you say like you know single-minded way of like thinking but isn't it strange that when you take a measure you want to check the effectiveness why haven't they spent a lot of money instead of like vaccines also in effectiveness of mask effectiveness of lockdown because this is affecting so many lives you want to have evidence-based science and what i see a lot is it's ideology-based science and when you're in that ideological spectrum then it's allowed but it has less to do with facts or negotiated truth science than it's just like black and white science like this is how it is yes it is uh, definitely uh uh, uh, ideologically driven, I think, and sometimes the experts, the experts also uh, uh, admit that. Uh, I remember uh, a virologist uh, here in Belgium, Ilika uh, Vlieger, who, who agreed that uh, mask wearing is a symbolic measure in the first place. Um, uh, and uh, then the, the Minister of Health who, 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 who admitted that the, the uh, uh, locking down um, uh, hotels and restaurants was a symbolic measure in the first place. So um, uh, people, I think that 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 that, that uh, 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 the, the, on the one hand we could argue that there should be more uh, research investigating the effectivity, the efficacy. Of, uh, of measures, yes, but I am quite skeptical about uh, it. Will the, the results, the conclusions of that research, will depend on the subjective um, uh, uh, preferences 
of the people who do the research. Yeah, uh, you know this, and, and that, that is also what I I think it's usually threatening for your profession and for uh, doctors and for scientists and virologists because this is a crisis also of authority and expertise. So I'm usually doubting right now, like who I should trust because I'm skeptical, but I'm more skeptical than ever. So the fact that you can't question certain things and that there's alternative motives behind it, you know, you know the, the statement, there's uh, truth, lies, and statistics. And you yes. have the famous book, How to Lie with Statistics, by that and us, like just manipulate the population you question, you know, or manipulate the graph or don't put it into context. And then you can have, you know, manipulated truth and a certain perception and, you know, that perception repeated enough and it becomes reality because people think like that's the only way to treat it. And then you have the narrow bandwidth of acceptable opinion that become increasingly narrow, then people never know that there's an outsider different perspective because it's just not allowed. You have the thought or the language police who says like, no, 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 this way of thinking is not allowed, which is very dangerous. Hmm. So I don't understand why not more colleagues see like this is threatening the credibility of your profession, the integrity of your profession, of so many yes. professions, of politics, of, of scientists, of virologists, of doctors, medicine. Uh, we, we have been dealing with this problem uh, since 15 years. In 2005, um, um, uh, we got um, the replication crisis in the sciences. And when it became clear that actually most results most conclusions of, uh, of scientific papers were hard to be replicated, even to be reproduced. Um, so we, we, this is a problem that, is, that has been growing the last five decades, I think. Uh, and it shows us that there is something problematic about our, the way in which we believe uh, we can know the world, uh, the way in which we believe we can investigate the world. Um, uh, uh, we are still under the illusion that uh, that really uh, that that true obje objective knowledge is possible, while it becomes more and more clear every day that uh, the process of scientific investigation is uh, is uh, is um, uh, quintessentially is, is a subjective undertaking. It's, it's at every step you take uh, in a, a, a scientific when you apply a scientific method, you have to make choices 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 which are intrinsically subjective in nature. So it's even not so much a matter of intentional manipulation, I think. It's more a matter that there is no other op option than to be subjective. And, and um, uh, of course, uh, some people, some researchers uh, deal with subjectivity in a, in a honest and sincere way. And others uh, actually either are not aware of the subjective nature of what they do, or they, they, they really start to uh, intentionally uh, uh, um, um, manipulate the, uh, uh, their, their conclusions. But, but I, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, when you, that's actually truly ob objective research, in the end, uh, is not possible. Uh, you know what I also find problematic, and I got... Um numbers from like Heert Nulls, but I don't know again like how much it was, but it was like, I don't know, 50% of the working population in Belgium are paid by the government. Mm -hmm. And also in universities, they're paid by the government. And uh, then mm -hmm. the students also a bit like the national television, it's paid by the government and people don't often attack the hands that feed them just as the second largest donor or the biggest, depending if America uh, what sponsored the WHO is Bill Gates with Bill Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation and the uh, Gavi Alliance. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, 
you're not going to at least attack the hands that feeds you, right? You maybe ameliorate, you know, or, you know, it plays a huge part. So I also feel that the ties between universities and public institutions and the state is so big that most of the people are not going against them or are not willing to put their reputation on the line to be character assassinated. What happens a lot, right? If you go against the narrative, they can remove you or go against you and... Uh, symbolic to kill you on social media or on the information platforms yeah and going against the narrative is always much more difficult and harder than uh, than uh, than following the the, the 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 narrative of course and indeed um, um, uh, uh, financial ties for instance do influence uh, research and that's well known and that's why uh, uh, academic or scientific journals uh, always ask you to mention uh, the financial ties you have because they know uh, that uh, that uh, they have an impact on uh, on the conclusion drawing and the research. So it would be good, I think, uh, if we did this a little bit. Uh, if, we did, if we also, if, if experts also did this during this crisis, just to mention every time uh, they um, they uh, they uh, uh, appear in public space. Uh, um, uh, uh, at national television or something that they mention, look, I have financial ties with this and that institution. Uh, that, that would be, I, I agree, it would, it would be good. Yeah. I mean, that's the level also where I have the discussions. I also talked about it in my presentation that I made, like, listen, I'm a true detective. I want to help people think. I want to provoke thoughts. But if the people who are involved in the decision-making benefit from certain decisions... That should be highly questionable. And I see this all the time, that the people are asked for guidance and decisions. It's almost like, hey, I'm an arms dealer. And then you sit in a panel and we ask, should we invade this country? And then I'm saying, yeah, we should do it. I mean, you should think twice to listen to me because, you know, I have skin in the game. You know, I have something at stake. But that is happening like all the time. Also, I heard that the panel in Belgium, that they're all paid by the state, the state. You know, and there's a lot of not so much private experts in that panel. So there's a bias there, you know. I, I don't think it's reasonable, you know, you kind of... What, what, do you mean, what, what do you mean with paid by the state? Weren't they? I, I read it. You can always dismiss, like, what happened. Of the yeah. people who were, like, in the panel, that the people who were, like, subsidized, that the, the most of the people who were in the panel, or the expert panel, that they were, like, paid by public institutions. So the pu public narrative that it kind of steers like what they think, because again, they finance them, you know, they pay for their job. Yeah. And I think that's yes. highly, highly problematic. And sometimes yes. I see people speaking for unions of businesses and even they say like, yeah, yeah it's good. The lockdown, maybe we should continue it. And they should be speaking for the side of the people who are behind them, right? Not say, okay, no more uh, hospitals and we don't care. No, but like also take this into account. I call it like the Holy Trinity, the hospitalizations, the infections, and the deaths, and that's it. It's like that, that narrow focus on these three things. Depression, suicide, loneliness, poverty, famine, relationship breakups, spou spousal abuse, lack of taxes, lack of income, hopelessness, the future, the way we're raising, raising children. All these things, no. We zoom in on that little corner in our house, and, and we forget the rest of the house, let alone the whole neighborhood, let alone the future and the world. It just seems crazy to only narrow, on, focus on that narrow angle to look at what's going on. Yes, 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 indeed, I agree, and that's exactly what I uh, what I have been 
what I tried to explain uh, with with uh, with my uh, my uh, my narrative on uh, on mass on, on crowd formation and mass psychology. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly what happens, I think, when when um, uh, a lot when there is a lot of uh, anxiety, free floating anxiety and discontent uh, in a civilization. The civilization becomes very prone to, to to narratives that put forward an object of anxiety and a strategy a strategy to deal with that object of, of anxiety. So all this free floating discontent and anxiety is connected to this object of anxiety, and uh, people start to engage. Uh, to participate in, in this strategy to deal with this object, for instance, the lockdown, the so- social distancing, in a ritualized way, and their attention is focused so unilaterally, so uh, exclusively on this object of anxiety and on the strategy that they absolutely are not aware uh, of, the, of the problems this strategy is causing somewhere else in society uh, that's the absurdity of, of, of mass psychology and that, that people and then it's perfectly uh, usually uh, people like Gustave Le Bon and Hannah Arendt compare it to, to hypnosis to hypnosis and the, that's exactly what it is uh, also hypnosis also focuses the attention on one specific aspect of reality and then uh, people you can cut their arm literally literally uh, 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 you can apply surgery, open heart surgery while they are under uh, hypnosis and they will never they will never feel it. They will never notice it. So, uh, and the same, and mass psychology has exactly the same effect. While people are focused their attention, they are, they, while their attention is grasped by the object of anxiety that is put forward in the, in the, in the mainstream narrative, uh, they can be, they, 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 you, 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 they can be uh, uh, lose so much at other levels, like... Uh, but it, uh, it's kind of like, you probably read this book, right? The Master Margarita? No. By Bulgakov. Well, the Mas Margarita is also when the devil arrives in uh, Russia. I think it's like Moscow, and it, it, people go like mad. There's like a whole craziness. It's like a symbolism of back then in, in Stalinist era. I think he liked the book, but Stalin was a crazy guy. Um, but the madness, like like the absurdity of certain things, like the level of absurdity, it's almost like it's being taken to a level on purpose because then nothing makes any sense at all. So then people maybe look at the easy explanation or the cognitive dissonance becomes so invasive that then people maybe are more prone to adhere to the rules because there's some things that are happening right now which are so crazy, taken to such a level. Is this a sign of totalitarianism or that focus and that people this become so absurd that the cognitive dissonance, even if you have common sense, becomes, gives so much pressure that you have to like cave in? It's definitely a characteristic of totalitarianism. And the strange thing actually is, uh, if you look at uh, uh, mass psychology, the psychology of the crowd, it's something that um, uh, Gustave Le Bon describes in a, in a, in a, in a magnificent way. Mm-hmm. He says like that the crowd is never uh, 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 looking for freedom, or what the crowd, what moves the crowd is never a desire for freedom. To the contrary, what they are looking for is someone who tells them what to do. And that's exactly why the crowd always chooses as their leader a tyrant. <laughs> or, or at least, at least someone who gives them strict rules to live along. That's exactly the strange thing about, about, about the psychology of the crowd. And um, it's actually very clear if you look, or very logical, if you look how, how 
why people become sensitive to crowd formation. Usually, a crowd arises in a situation where there are many people who deal with a lack of societal structure. When there is a lack of structure, people feel isolated, atomized, anxious, and they start to look for someone who offers them uh, an excess of structure. That's a strange thing. So it's like a switch from the one opposite to the other opposite. A, a complete lack of structure, rules, and the rules uh, makes people long for an excess of rules. And that's what happens in crowd formation. That's a strange thing. If you want to, to manage a crowd, if you want to lead a crowd, then you have to be then you, then you have to then you have to to offer very austere and strict and severe rules and that, that that that's what in one way or an unconscious way people are looking for when they are sensitive for crowd formation um, 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 is it a bit alike like when people have a porn addiction that they try to fill up the void by releasing tension which create again like an anxious spiral or a shame spiral and then it builds up again and then you know they, they numb themselves again because it's it's almost the same thing that people cling to the television it's negative for them but it, it gives some predictability about what's going on in the world like not the good thing like the negative thing but it leads is a predictable reality a predictive reality and they keep on looking for the things that gives them immense stress yes. that, that, that fills a void but it doesn't fill it you know but it keeps them occupied and they repeat that addictive hypnosis even, pattern even if it leads up to radical self-destruction so that's what's the that's what um, uh, was so amazing uh, when uh, when uh, when uh, Western um, uh, researchers observed what happened in, uh, under under Nazism in Germany and uh, and Stalinism in, in USSR, USSR, that they, they 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 noticed that people were radically self-destructive, even if they knew they knew that uh, that Hitler would would lead up to to, uh, to the destruction of a German. Population, they, they continue to follow him, uh, and even if they felt that Stalin, uh, that conditions uh, got worse, um, uh, worse and worse uh, under Stalin, they continue to to adore him. That was a strange thing. Um, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of compare it to people who are being taken hostage, and in the end, you have the Stockholm syndrome. The funny thing is that in Stockholm, they have the most freedom <laughs> right now, almost. That mm-hmm. they think like, oh, I'm so happy that this person is. Taking me hostage because he's protecting me from all the criminals outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. indeed, stuff like that, indeed. And we also we have, I, I think, like we we still do not um, uh, succeed in really uh, understanding what freedom means to people. For a human being, mm-hmm. freedom is never the easiest way. Freedom is really. It's 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 uh, it's uh, it's struggle. Uh, you have to take responsibility. You have to take you have to take risks. Freedom is extremely satisfying uh, after a long time because you feel uh, if you're free, if you make your own choices, if you choose that you realize yourself as a subject, as a human being, and that you really start to exist as a personality and as a human being. But before you have this satisfaction. You have to struggle hard for many years. And, and that's what people have an almost irresistible tendency to prefer advantages uh, uh, on a short term 
uh, uh, over uh, to prefer small advantages on the short term over large advantages on the long term. So that's what freedom really most people, uh, uh, for most people, freedom is hell. And, and when they are confronted with a situation with a lack of structure, with a lack of rules, they start to long in an, in an irresistible way for someone who takes their freedom away. Mm. That's a strange thing. And that's what I often hear now during the lockdown and with the curfew uh, preventing you or, 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 uh, of, 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 of going out after 12 o'clock or 10 o'clock. A lot of people, are, uh, quite some people have, have told me like, well, yes, this curfew uh, um, is not democratic and we don't like it and so on. But on the other hand, uh, we are always uh, 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 going to bed. Uh, uh, early now, and we do feel better the day after. So, in, in one way or another, in one way or, in one way or another, uh, people uh, uh, think it's easy that someone else uh, decides for them, regulates their life, uh, and 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 um, uh, uh, take away the burden of the shoulders of having to choose themselves. Yeah, I sometimes uh, say they didn't want to go for herd immunity; they went for herd mentality instead. You know? Yes. <laughs> Uh, because, I mean, it, it can maybe sound a bit harsh, but if I would have to explain to a person in the Middle Ages that we have to lock down and change society completely for, and I know I'm using the numbers by um, Ioannidis from the WHO, that the mortality rate is like 0.23%. Like that's, you know, the widest range that he would give to the mortality rate, where on average in the West, the people who die are like 81, 82, 83 years old, which is an age... You know, and I told the comorbidities, which are natural, there's nothing outside of the ordinary. We should protect them, of course, but to donate all focus and resources of a society that are finite and come from the citizens for something that is a bit of biological phenomenon, also with like flu and bacteria. We had evolution in symbiosis with bacteria and viruses. Seems completely absurd. How can I tell the coming generations that we gave up society and, you know, reinvent the society and change everything for something that was like 0.23% mortality. How is this again disproportionate? This, this doesn't make any sense for me to be so extreme in, in treating this. Yes, I, I think nobody will be able to explain it uh, later on what happened now. I, I think it will be con considered uh, as, as one of the strangest uh, psychological states uh, a society ever went through. Uh, it's, it's, I, it's extremely strange. Uh, and the mortality rates of Ioannidis, uh, they seem quite realistic to me. Uh, 20, 0.23%, uh, indeed. And the average um, uh, age uh, of, the, of the fatalities is uh, 83, I think, in Belgium, yeah. which is a little bit more than the average, uh, than the average rate, uh, age of dying. Yeah, it's like 83. So, yes. It's, 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 uh, I agree that that has always been, in my opinion as well, that you cannot understand this crisis unless you realize that uh, we are under the spell of very strong psychological forces, uh, which, uh, which, uh, um, you know, which prevent us uh, uh, from considering uh, 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 problems in a, with an open mind. Uh, I also read the classics, uh, uh, also read Ernest Becker, the, den uh, the denial of that, that in a way we try to avoid that, put it away, but in a way we want to leave behind something meaningful, as existential existentialist in me that's like speaking. 
But I think nobody at the end of their life will say like, hey, you know what was the best moment in my life? When I was safe, when I was comfortable, mm. when I was, you know, like somebody oh. else took care of me and decided for me. Nobody will look back at their life and say, that's the most meaningful, that's the most alive, that's the most fulfilling parts in my life. I mean, life in part is taking risk, taking responsibility, failure, growing, learning, you know, making your own choices, then seeing you did the mistake, then, you know, uh, making it up etc that's like being a human and i have a quote that is like the danger is not for robots to become like humans the danger is for humans to become like robots and in a way that that's right for self-determination that way to not hurt people but think for yourself you know freedom of speech freedom of expression that is at stake right now and that's everything for me that's meaningful and that that gives a fulfilling life and for me that is essentially if we want to remake the future i want to make a meaningful fulfilling life at the center Mm. and we've been worshiping the altar of technology and progress and that's the main thing you know and we should be running behind it almost like alice in wonderland here you have to walk to run twice as hard just to stay at the same place People have never been as anxious, as lonely, as depressed. So it's not making us happier on a human level. Mm-hmm. So we're still following that enlightenment ideal like, hey, technology and more progress and we're happier. Well, we have now years, decades of research that it's not making us happier. Mm-hmm. So why are we still worshipping it and putting it at the core of everything that we do? Shouldn't be integrated that we have a meaningful life, a fulfilling life, a human life, and then have a broad debate about it instead of just having this transhumanism, technocracy, faster, easier, more comfortable. But it's not making people happier on an existential level. No, that's where the debate should be about. How do we want to conceive life? Uh, what are the different options? What are the different ideologies uh, uh, we can adopt to... Um, uh, to try to conceive a future for the human being. What future do we want? The the ideological background is completely neglected. It is as if there is only one uh, ideological background which is scientific and which is justified. And that's not the case at all. There are many uh, ideologies uh, that can uh, give rise to, to science or to a scientific consideration. And even that, science has its limits. Science has its limits. Uh, we, we should not expect too much of science. That's, it's, it's a good thing that we try to follow reason. But if you really follow reason, if you really follow it in an honest way, then you soon approach the border of reason. And then you see that there is a limit to what can be understood in a logical way. And that's exactly what the, the, what the, the great scientists of the 20th and, and also the 19th century actually uh, concluded that, uh, that in the end, uh, the real and, and, uh, and, and the reality uh, 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 is much more prone to, to, uh, uh, to poetry uh, than, to, than to logics. Uh, that's what Niels Bohr said. When it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. I like it so much because he really, he said this in a very serious way. And he said, that, like, when you observe atoms, it's so irrational, the way in which they move, so fundamentally irrational, uh, that logics makes no chance to, 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 to succeed, to grasp something about the real of an atom. So uh, um, uh, you should turn to, to poetry uh, to, to grasp something 
of the of the of the essence of uh, of of, uh, of of the behavior of uh, of, uh, of atomic particles. And um, uh, uh, I, I believe that the same. Yes, yeah. I, I did actually, but this this has opened a lot of like my my brain muscles. Also, probably for you because it tackles so many areas in life. Uh, I actually did a bit of a Marxist analysis of it, and in the past, Marx said like those who have the power have the means of production, and they oppress the worker by using their labor for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. Now it's those who have the means of information and perception they have the power and they extract the attention and focus out of citizens for their own benefit yes 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 it's and that, that is now a psychological game a perceptual game where people are entangled to the web it's also called the web stuck to the web and that it being fed a prescribed narrative and that is very dangerous because increasingly more aspects of people their life are being tracked monitored prescribed that sometimes people don't know any different, just as people who lived in the matrix, that they never knew that it just just a constructive reality that wasn't real because it was all mm-hmm. that they were known. They were born into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yes. I, I remember uh, when I was 17 years old, I went to the movie theater and I, I uh, to, to watch um, uh, uh, a James Bond movie, GoldenEye, I think, mm-hmm. uh, with, with, Pier, with Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. And in the, be- in the beginning of the movie... Uh, uh, someone said, I don't remember who, but someone said, um, uh, uh, the one who controls the media controls the world. And, and that's true. And the one who controls the narrative controls the world. Of course. I mean, the, the one who creates the matrix, you could say, you could say, uh, controls the world. And uh, that's exactly what we, we are facing now. Eh? We are facing now the problem that uh, there is a narrative uh, of which many people, I think, realize that that is really limited and that mm-hmm. it is not at all, uh, it does not at all represent the fact, uh, but at the same, and, uh, at the same time, uh, we all feel profoundly powerless uh, to change it. <laughs> That's the- I also think that there's a kind of false social activism. That people do a tweet, people do a like, people do a post, and they think like, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing as Martin Luther King in Washington in 1963. And it gives that false sense of like, I'm an activist. But in the way you just do it on a platform, Facebook, that's a whole other discussion, etc. It's on rented territory, and it also has an ideological basis. That that also takes away of the organic connections between people and the real activism and the real standing up for something and creating movements. I think social media also plays a huge role in the false social activism and the remarkable, at least that's what I found, the kind of acquiescence of people to condone this and not protest and stand up, despite the measures, of course. How do you look mm-hmm. at it? Yeah, I also think that it, it is. Uh, it is. A t- well, I, I, I don't think it's a good uh, a good thing that uh, uh, people limit uh, uh, their actions uh, um, uh, to, to the social media because, in one way or another, we are all stuck to the computer screen uh, and 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 we we we, uh, we act only in the virtual world uh, while while real life is going on somewhere else. Uh, uh, yes, yes. 
um, um, you know, before the Corona crisis, uh, I, I, I never used Facebook or something. I never did it. But then I started, I started to write opinions, uh, and I started to think about ways to to um, um, to disseminate them. Uh, and it felt like, well, uh, I I'd rather take a Facebook account and uh, get as many followers uh, as possible. Um, uh, but now I, I see that it doesn't really have a good effect on me. I try to use it less because because uh, uh, it's not really gratifying or it doesn't really. Uh, it rather sucks me empty than that it's it's it's, uh, it's than that it's giving me a, a real satisfaction. And I believe indeed that one of the reasons is that you feel actually that your life is. Uh, when it only has consequences in the virtual space, it does actually have no consequence at all. That's, uh, yeah, and also we live in the attention economy, so you can be a nobody and you can have a lot of followers and your tweet gets a lot of tweets and likes. And you can be invited to the studio and speak your opinion because you got a lot of attention. While in the past, to be able to speak in a studio, you had to have some credentials. You had to have some books, you know. So I feel like the discussions in the past also on the BBC were a lot more in-depth with a lot of people with expertise, you know, and they deserved their stage on the platform. But then it was based on authority and credentials. Now it's just based on attention and whatever gets, you know, the followers and the headlines. It's also what I blame the newspapers. You know, attention is the currency and it gets like, you know, eyes on what they do, also the politicians. But it's actually polarizing people and it's not bringing out the best in the citizens, even though a lot of these things are paid with public tax money. Yeah, 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 indeed. Um, yeah. You also talked about the Sol Solomon Ash experience. I always found that very interesting when I read it. I was always wondering, like, how I would react. Um, it's the experiment where you have like lines and only certain lines are an equal length and then they go to a group and then they say like, hey, which lines are equally long and they planted people who say the wrong thing and then I don't know how many people, maybe 80, 90 percent adhered with what the other people, the planted people said, even though clearly the lines weren't as 75 percent, 75 percent. Well, or only 25 percent consequently. Uh, 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 gave the right answer. Yes, against against group pressure. Yes, but the the, 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 the experiments of Solomon Ash are uh, among my favorites in the history of psychology because um, uh, they are really good uh, both at the at the methodological level, but also just very interesting and, and very uh, uh, evocative. I think. Uh, what makes someone be able to take a stand and say like I'm going to go against the peer pressure, I'm going to go against the social narrative? I'm really curious about the characteristics of those 25 percent. Yes, that's a good question. What makes that some people uh, stand group pressure? Um, uh, nobody knows actually. It seems mm. it seems that it is uh, like um, a characteristic of a human being that cannot be gauged. That it cannot. It's hard to be described. It's actually a fundamental, irreducible characteristic of a human being to make the choice either to take the easy road. And to go along with the group, uh, uh, and, uh, and and to to avoid having to to go against the current, um, uh, to 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 um, yeah, you know, um, or to choose for truth actually, because that's that's what it is all about. Yeah? When you say what everybody feels is the right answer, or what most people feel is the right answer, or you take the easy way. And uh, and um, disappear uh, in the group without ha having to 
to fight or to struggle against group opinion. And yeah, for, for me, a life, a life without values is no life at all. So for me, when something hurts my values, I want to stand up for it. And that's been the thing when you read the book 1984, you have the scene where they say like two plus two equals five. But you yeah. know it's not five, it's four. Mm -hmm. And you would have to give up your own unique perception and opinion. You have to reduce yourself by just being an obedient slave with no opinion at all to say it's five. And to then say it's five, it's like I relinquish any individuality, any aspect of myself, any critical thinking. And when I would have to do that, it's, it's, like, it's like a symbolic death of myself. I have nothing yeah. to stand for anymore. No. That's what uh, that was uh, uh, the Talmud already says. Every time uh, uh, you uh, refuse uh, or you neglect to speak words of which you know they are true, you lose a part of your soul. And uh, and and I I, yes, I agree with that. Yes, it's, it's 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 I hope that uh, very soon people start to realize uh, what the the uh, what true words or words, what, what we lose ourselves as human beings if we, if we, uh, um, if we uh, uh, neglect um, uh, to, to, to speak words of which we know that at that moment and to the best of our thinking and reasoning are true. Um, uh, but the experiments of Ash, they really show in an amazing way um, uh, how, what the effect of group pressure on individuals can be. It's, it's so amazing. You know, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But at the same time, we actually see it time and time, time and time, time and time again on the news and stuff uh, that there are, you know, some of the figures that are presented, of the graphs, uh, of the some of the information uh, that is presented is often so absurd uh, that uh, we can only understand it. Uh, in a psychological way, why people accept it and why people uh, well, do not trust I'm, I'm just it. very intrigued about because I also graduated in journalism. But okay, some people must buy into the narrative. Okay. There, there must be some people who see still different kind of information, different kind of angles, who want to have investigative journalism. And they go every day to their job thinking, how can I keep my population the most scared possible, bring disaster news? And they go to their job every day, even though they see other angles and information. I mean, of course, there's cognitive dissonance. Of course, you want to give value to what you do. But I don't understand how people can see this and then just ignore it or know it and still go to their job and participate on this on such a level, on such a scale. What psychological mechanism drives someone to be able to do that? Because once I would see a glimpse of another perspective, I can't unsee it. It's like punching yeah. back from the apple, right and wrong, even though it's not a nice reality. I still want to choose the truth. I still want to take that into the equation. But that so many people keep on participating in this, on a political, on a scientific, on a media level, that blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can you can look at it from two angles. I think on the one on the one hand, uh, you can wonder how it, how it is possible that the majority of the people refuses to see the truth, 
And we have to agree that the truth is a problematic concept. I mean, it's not easy to determine what is the truth, of course. That's also what Foucault says. Eh? Like, uh, the truth definitely exists. But it's, 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 it's very problematic because the truth cannot be pinpointed. It's something that uh, appears time and time again on a different place. It's something that, it's something that uh, 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 can never be formulated twice in the same words. Um, the truth, said Lacan, is always new. Uh, every time again, it will appear in a new light, in a new way, in a new dress. And that's a nice thing about the truth. But nevertheless, we all feel in a certain situation that there is something that is not said and that nevertheless is true. And then some people take the responsibility and try to put it into words, no matter how difficult it is. So I think you can look at it from two angles. On the one hand, we can wonder how it is possible that that many people refuse to see that something is not said and that the story that is told, the mainstream narrative is not right and that there is something wrong with it. On the other hand, we could really be surprised that there are some people who really uh, 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 took the pains of going against the against the current, and 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 who tried to see what the other people don't want to see. Both things are uh, amazing in one way or another, I think. Um, uh, and history has shown that there always have been people like that. There always have been people who are prepared to risk their lives, to to uh, to give their lives, uh, to try to uh, to formulate these specific words of which they think uh, uh, that they are true or that they should be spoken uh, against the, uh, the rest of the people. Um, uh, uh, because I think people don't really realize like freedom of protest, freedom of assembly, freedom of the body, freedom of speech. So many freedoms are being retracted and some people see it now as something temporary. But I look into the future like this can become a permanent way or a default way of treating this. And you also make sure that not a lot of protest is possible because you can protest, you can assembly with a lot of people, like your opinion is being censored. So that makes it also problematic because there's like two narratives. When I put on the TV, it's like, oh, my God, this apocalypse is the worst thing ever. And today has been like a great sunny day, drinking my tea, hey, and smiling. And it's like a huge disconnect. It's like they tell you every day for a year, there's like an angry bear outside. There's an angry bear outside. And then for a year, you don't see any bear. At some point, you got to ask, like, is there really a scary bear or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people don't. And then they ask a question. Um... Um, so, so how do you see people? I mean, I've been inspired by um, only David Thoreau, civil disobedience, and finding yeah, I mean, ways. Me too. That's nice. Yes. yes. Yeah. How do you see ways to counter this? How do you see? Somebody asked uh, in my audience, how do you break the mass hypnosis of people? Like, what are some ways to? Well, uh, you know, uh, the good news is uh, that that um, uh, uh, crowd formation and totalitarianism is intrinsically self-destructive and that's mm. the good the good and the bad news at the same time and that's why um, 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 Hannah Arendt says like uh, tyrannies and dictatures 
can continue for thousands of years, but a totalitarian system not. Uh, it breaks down in a much shorter period period of time because it, ins- it is intrinsically self-destructive. A dictator is not necessarily self-destructive, not at all. Just from time to time, there were dictators who ruled in a constructive way. Um, uh, but, but totalitarianism is intrinsically self-destructive, something that is already mentioned in the 19th century by Gustave Le Bon, before the first totalitarian system ever arose, eh, because the first totalitarian systems arose, emerged in the 20th century. But Gustave Le Bon already mentioned that in a very, in a, in a, in a, in a very clairvoyant way, in a very prophetic way. He said, I notice there always have been crowds. And so a crowd for Gustave Le Bon is a kind of group with very specific characteristics. And so, for instance, a group in which all individual characteristics disappear and everybody uh, uh, has the same characteristics in a very strange way. Everybody is exactly as smart as the other. Uh, um, um, uh, 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 So... That's one characteristic of, 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 of a crowd, according to Gustave Le Bon. And Gustave Le Bon said that um, uh, crowds have always existed. Uh, um, uh, but he said, what I notice is that their strength and their impact on political decision-making is growing, he said. And he said, I'm quite sure. He, 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 uh, he mentioned that in a book published in, uh, in 1895, mm. uh, uh, entitled uh, The Psychology of the Crowd. Uh, and he said, I, I expect uh, that uh, the impact of the crowd on, on the political level uh, uh, and on the elite, the societal elite, uh, will uh, rise, uh, will, will get, uh, uh, get larger, and that soon we will see a political we will see political systems which actually are governed by the crowd because he said up until now sometimes a crowd a crowd emerged but uh, but uh, it was immediately countered uh, uh, by uh, the leaders of of society uh, uh, a prince or 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 or, 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 or a king or something uh, or, a dict- or a dictator <coughs> but um, um but the thing, that worries, the, the thing that worries me here, and normally I would think in a Hegelian way, like it goes like in a pendulum swing, but the thing that worries me here is like, A, democracy has almost been taken out of the equation here. It's like an expert panel of like 24 people, and they just make the decisions. And it's actually not the citizens who decide things. It's actually the big, big media, big pharma, big money, and those things. And I see more and more decisions being made by technology, so one thing that worries me, but this is a very disaster scenario, if we're going to track and trace more people, like, you know, more data, you have more control, predictive control. So when you can have more data about their perception, about their behavior, you can also influence their perception and their behavior. What you say, what you do, what you eat, how you move, how you assemble. And when you then give the decisions to, like, technology instead of people and more and more money accumulates to, like, big corporations, globalist institutions, it's almost like the means of resistance have been reduced because that technology doesn't sleep, it keeps on growing and it can control people and the human element is being taken out of it. That's the this, this utopian side in me, but that's another equation that didn't happen in the past with revolutions and like the pendulum swing. That's true. Yes, something changed. Technology changed. That's true. And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid um, the years to come might be terrible. Terrible years, but still they don't scare me. It's strange because I know 
that uh, this might be the last uh, episode of a of a of a of a, a world which is needed and which is which functions uh, uh, according to the illusion of control and manipulation. And we might uh, what we might see now is the emergence of the ultimate totalitarian system, which Hannah Arendt predicted in, in 1951. In 1951, Hannah Arendt said, we've seen uh, the decline uh, and the fall of Nazism. Nazism. We've seen, uh, we've seen that um, uh, Stalinism is on its way back. Uh, but she, she said, uh, make no mistake, when these systems disappear, the core, the essence of totalitarian thinking will continue in society. And sooner or later, she said, and probably sooner, there will be a totalitarian system uh, that is a worldwide system. Uh, and as she, she said, it will be a very strange uh, totalitarian system. It will be a monster that divorces its own children. She says that literally. She says that literally. It will be a monster that divorces its own children. Uh, and it will be a worldwide system. And she mentioned already that the, the emergence of large international institutions uh, uh, would, would, would uh, contribute to this worldwide um, uh, totalitarian system. Uh, and she said, like, this system won't have an external enemy, meaning that it will much quicker than, than, the, than the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, uh, it will devour its own children, because every totalitarian system ends up devouring its own children. That's the last phase, and it always happens. It always happens in the most terrible way. Um, um, and I think that might be what we are uh, uh, seeing now, uh, the, 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 the rise of a, of a, of a, a worldwide totalitarian system. And in any case, I'm sure that what we see now is, is the, 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 the intensification of, of totalitarian thinking. What we, the kind of the thought processes that we see now in the media are, are extremely uh, showing this, this core characteristic of totalitarian thinking, the constant illusion that there is no alternative. And if this happens, then that has to happen. And it is this inflexible, rigid logic that, according to Hannah Arendt, is the essence of totalitarianism. That, she says, when, when you see this kind of logic appear, this kind of logic which, which tries to convince people and which tries to convince everyone that there is no alternative and that because there is no alternative, you have to cross all ethical boundaries. And that's what's happening now, actually. It's like there the Borg. No... Have you ever seen Star Trek or not? No. You have, like, the Borg in Star Trek and they, like, clone each other and they have, like, a slogan, like, we are the Borg, resistance is futile. And they just yeah. assimilate the technology, take over people and just replicate, you know. Yeah. Yeah, what is the strange, yeah. yeah. The strange thing is that when people think about totalitarianism, they often think about the totalitarian regime and concentration camp and work camps and stuff. But that is only the last step, the last step uh, of, of, of a huge, impressive uh, psychological process which uh, leads to this kind of totalitarian thinking. And then... Uh, 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 this, when, when this kind of thinking is uh, disseminated in society and society is saturated with it, uh, there is no other option uh, than a totalitarian leader to appear and to take advantage of this thinking and to, and to install uh, an iron totalitarian regime. Uh, and I think what we see, we see the first steps of it now. Uh, and, and as Yuval Novak Harari said uh, last week, I think, 
the, the problem is, he said, that when people think about totalitarianism, they think they will notice it uh, uh, when totalitarianism is there. But most people, he said, will never notice it. They will be in it without being aware of it. And that's what happens now. If I wrote my article or my interview on totalitarianism, people really asked me in a serious way whether I, whether I was crazy, whether I, did I see Nazis marching through the streets and concentration camps and stuff. Uh, 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 so that's, they are blind to what, the, to, to the, to what is, to what the essence is of totalitarianism. Maybe that's this the overtone window that it caused like increasingly like boiling the frog, like Hitler also didn't invade Poland in just like, I don't know, a year. It was also increasingly, you know, the Jews also didn't go to the concentration camp immediately. It was more like shutting down their businesses, going to a ghetto, going to another camp, etc. Yeah. And when you do something incrementally, that's kind of, it's amazing how adaptive humans are, but it's also yeah. amazing how adaptive humans are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the strange thing. When I see the society right now, this is not a livable society for me. It's not only avoiding deaths, it's also creating life and managing livelihoods. And what people don't realize is that even if they do nothing, or they don't resist, they kind of silently are voting for a way of living for the future and coming generations. Mm-hmm. And what I see happening, like, I don't want to have my vote by condoning or going around it, but Belgians are good at it. Like, I will bribe someone with a vaccination mm-hmm. passport or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you're condoning, you're giving a vote for the future model of society, and I'm not condoning this, but they just, on mm-hmm. the present moment, feel anxiety, and they don't see the long-term consequences. No, that's true, yes. Yes, and they could even be not so long-term. I think uh, we could be surprised uh, what will have changed uh, till the end of this year, I think. Um, yeah, and it was very uh, surprising for me because normally it's like, don't touch my children. It's like so visceral visceral for like mothers when you come and touch their children. But even now when I see the distancing and the mask and that population is almost no deaths in that population between 5 and 17, and what I see what's happening like with adolescents and the youth, that mothers are even condoning this, that surprises me because we had one of the biggest marches ever in Belgium when something happened with our children with the G2 crisis. So I would think like, yeah, they're going to take a stand. These moms are going to unite at the schools. But even then it's not happening, which surprised me a lot. Mm. What is the opposite of totalitarianism? What is, what is some way to combat it or what some elements to stand up? Or is it just the process of enhancing the chaos entropy and then it would create order and a... The opposite of totalitarianism is definitely not um, uh, radical freedom or, or, or absence absence of rules or laws. It's it's um, it's uh, uh, it's the opposite of totalitarianism is a constructive, productive, fruitful way uh, to handle uh, uh, laws and rules in a society. A law and a rule should not be used. Or should not be opposed to uh, to, uh, to subjective choice uh, and and subjective differences, uh, but it should be it should guarantee a space for every human being uh, uh, to to be creative and to to make his own choices in society. That's exactly what the law should guarantee. The law is exactly there to guarantee to everybody that he has a certain personal freedom. And that's what a law should be. So there should be a law. There should definitely be a law. And it can, it, can, it can even be imposed in a quite radical way, I think. But it should always be imposed with the goal or with the purpose of 
guaranteeing to every individual that he or she can be free to a certain extent and that he can make his own choices in life and that he can uh, 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 exist uh, as, a, as, as a human being, which means as a, as a being that makes his own choices. So the opposite of totalitarianism, uh, of, totali of a totalitarian uh, way to, to, uh, to impose a law, is a, a way to impose the law which guarantees freedom instead of opposing it and uh, exterminating it and, and radically uh, erasing, uh, uh, destroying every uh, space in which uh, a human being can be a human being. Um, uh, and are there limits to freedom? And what should those limits then be? Because some people say, yeah, yes. but it's, it's killing people's lives. You're affecting, you're committing violence onto other people. So that is yeah. where your freedom ends. That's only that's only true uh, uh, within a certain narrative and within a certain logic, I think. And uh, we have to, of, of course, there are limits to to ethical. There are ethical limits to freedom. Uh, we cannot do everything we want uh, if it has consequences for the other. But at the same time, it's uh, it's uh, extremely clear that human beings always are a little bit dangerous to other human beings. And if we want to eliminate uh, that little risk, uh, uh, there will be no human beings at all anymore because we will, uh, we will force human beings to be, as you said, a machine, yeah? um, for instance. Uh, so are there limits to freedom? There are ethical limits and a human being is never entirely free. I, I'm sure that the aspiration, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the demand of the, the striving for radical freedom ends up in the opposite. That's what I, that, that's what I mean. It, uh, it, it ends up in, in a radical longing uh, for, for, uh, for uh, totalitarian rulers, I think. But uh, I think human beings, the first thing they have to try to become aware of is that there is a limit to their own logical understanding, to their own reason. Uh, um, um, uh, that they are limited in their capacity to understand the world and to control the world and to manipulate the world. And they should try to connect to a kind of knowledge that is out there in the real and that will tell them time and time again in an always new way uh, how uh, they have to or they can uh, uh, exist as a human being. Um, uh, I think what we are mainly stumbling upon now is um, uh, uh, upon what uh, the ancients called hubris, uh, human, mm -hmm. uh, how do you call it? Um, yeah, Tower of Babel, yeah. Yes, well, uh, the, the, the illusion uh, that we can understand everything and that uh, our knowledge, uh, that we can, that we can uh, uh, live our lives starting from our, from our own logical understanding of life. That's just not true. Every time again, you have to be aware that uh, the world around us escapes our understanding and that exactly because it escapes our understanding, because we can never reduce it to the categories of our own thinking, that we have to show uh, a, a true respect uh, for uh, other people, for uh, for the world, for the things in it, uh, because we have to be aware that something there, out there, uh, can can never be reduced to how we think, and that we always have to listen in a careful way uh, and try to hear what this otherness is trying to tell us, 
uh, uh, yeah, that's the opposite of like hubris, like humility, right? Like humility towards like nature that we're a part yes. of it and that we're lucky that we have so much control and like comfort. Like whether you're a Jungian or a Freudian, like the immense power of the unconscious, the irrational, how it can control us, how it can possess us, the immense atrocities, but also fantastic things that humans did. That's why I read about the evil to become a better person, to understand that part in me that could become like that, to be more humble, to integrate my own bad parts in myself and that makes me like you know trying to negotiate life with my own ethics but i think that's a valuable quest that's shedding light into the dark and you might not see you might see things that you don't like but it illuminates things for me it puts things into perspective and for me it gives a much more holistic approach and instead of devouring me or making me destructive it makes me more humble pushing them in the dark under the rug ignoring them that then festers and that beats yes. a lot of evil and people often think that it's the opposite yeah indeed i agree and it even leads up to a different relationship with dying and that i, I noticed that if you accept that you cannot know everything in one way or another for me it gives me the peace and the calm uh, to accept that one day my uh, existence here on earth will end it's strange i i i i, I the, the, the the moment i started to really accept that uh, uh, my um, uh, 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 that my my capacity to understand was limited. It's was also yeah. was always the, also the moment I tried. I I I started to be able to accept uh, that everything ends uh, and that uh, that uh, that uh, that my life uh, would end one day, uh, just because I you know. Yeah, it's also strange, this whole crisis. On one hand, it gave me an existential shock, but in a way, I had this whole niching birth, like standing for my values and reinventing my values. And a part of me also feels alive, because now is a time that they aren't taken for granted. I have to stand up for them. So it's like a weird mixture of being in shock, but also feeling immensely alive, because I can stand up for something that has a lot of meaning to me. Absolutely. If people want to find out more about everything that you do, uh, where can they check out more material of you? Oh, there are some videos on the internet, um, uh, some interviews. At least one of it is translated, a video on a mass psychology and um, uh, anxiety and mass psychology during the corona crisis. And also I wrote uh, the two books you mentioned. They are written in English, so uh, they are open to an international public. Uh, readership, uh, yeah, that are the main sources uh, where people kind of find out about uh, my work, I think. Uh, my books, uh, then of course my articles on Web of Science, but they are more technical articles, which are usually less interesting, I think, uh, for someone who is not really uh, an academic researcher. Uh, I think my books and, and some of my interviews uh, will be the major resources, I think. What is the last message of uh, to the people who are wondering, like, what can we do? What should we focus on? What is something maybe in the, the social sphere, in the individual sphere or psychological sphere that you think is worthy that people focus on right now? To uh... For me personally, I think it's so important not to fight against something, but to start to, start to, to wonder uh, what the alternative is uh, for this kind of society which leads up, which led up to the corona crisis and which uh, uh, intensifies during the corona crisis and of which many people feel that there is something wrong with it, that there should be an alternative. And I think really uh, in a peaceful and, and calm way, 
starting to think uh, how we could lead a life where there is mo- more worth living and that 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 is led uh, according to other principles um, uh, and and if possible, really leading that life, really trying to do something. Uh, I started to grow my own vegetables in my garden here uh, uh, during the first lockdown, and it's so satisfying for me. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, and then because I also started to think like, well, okay, but what's wrong with the society, and what's wrong with the economic system, and what's wrong with our production system and stuff, and what's wrong with our relationship to nature? Uh, uh, and one of the first conclusions that I, 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 I drew was like, well. Uh, actually, maybe it would be better if everybody tried to work a little bit with his, with his hands close to nature and try to get in touch with nature more by producing a little bit of his own food. And uh, uh, this was one of the most, uh, the best decisions I made during the last years, I think. It even gives me, uh, I, I even want to, want to go further in that direction, I think. Uh, um, uh, uh, I like it very much. So I think whatever you do or whatever you want to do, but I think it's not a good idea to, to, to define your life uh, um, uh, uh, too much uh, 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 in a struggle against something else. It's better to try to define it in a positive way and to really do, take steps uh, to lead a different life uh, uh, because it's possible, it's possible. And, and that's the ultimate solution to the crisis, I think. Uh, people who really offer a true alternative to the to the to the, the dead alley uh, we find ourselves in now, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's a meaning crisis, and I think this postmodernism of deconstructing things and this anti-mentality. I also have a saying mm-hmm. that if all you see is the enemy, you become the enemy. Yes. And then you rebel against something and you keep it alive because that gives you the identity of keeping the enemy alive. So fighting for something, standing for something, cultivating something civil disobedience, standing up for something and creating your little wall in the huts. <laughs> like oh, yeah, Honey yeah, David yeah. Durow. I liked it. I liked it very much. Durow has a has wall in the hut. Yes. In in the yard of Ronald Emerson, I think like I'm going back to the classics. I think it's also good yeah. to read the classics to know. Yeah, I also read that I also read Ronald Emerson. It's so beautiful. There's a little essay in nature. For instance, yeah, on so nature and on friendship, yeah. like we yeah. read it, it's like beautiful and it's more it's, active yeah. than ever. Or on liberty by John Stuart Mill and the classics. Yeah. So, thanks so much for being uh, a voice of reason and the willingness and the bravery to stand in the middle. Because I know a guy who reaches out in the middle gets shot at the most by both sides, and it uh, demands bravery and courage to stand for constructive debate. And it's been an Honor to have you on the podcast. Keep uh, doing your thing and fighting for uh, the good cause, Matthias. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Philippe, because uh, all pleasure was mine, actually. I liked it. Okay, that's it. Um, Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.